0: So my father is 84 years old, and he is deep in storytelling mode right now in the season of his life. And many of these stories I've heard, and there are some that I've never heard. So many of you know Jimmy and I, we just got back from uh, two weeks in Korea visiting my parents, and one night over dinner... He began telling one of these stories that I've never heard before about how his younger sister in North Korea lost her arm. So during the war, um, as you've heard me share before, my father and his older siblings left for the South, um, not knowing that they would never be able to return again. And then his parents and his younger siblings, who were too young to travel, they stayed behind. And he heard the story from his family, who he was miraculously reunited with um, 35 years later, um, about all of this. And so one night there was an air raid, and as his family began heading down to the shelter, there was um, a terrified young mother with her baby um, who had nowhere to go. And the part of the story that I knew was that my grandfather tried to help them and take them into their family's shelter, but before they reached it, Um, A bomb exploded, and my grandfather and this mother and baby were killed instantly. What I didn't know is that my aunt, seven years old at the time, was with them. And she survived, but she suffered grave injuries, including the loss of her arm from that attack. And then my father said something else that I had never known. And he said... It was an American plane that dropped the bomb. That Americans killed my grandfather and maimed my aunt when she was just a child. That Americans did this to my family. And you know, he didn't say it with with bitterness or anything like that. Like Koreans of his generation are actually immensely grateful to Americans for their part in the Korean War. Like if it hadn't been for their intervention, the entire Korean Peninsula might be North Korea. And so it's complicated. So you know how sometimes someone will say something that doesn't quite register in the moment, Um, Like, you hear it, but it just doesn't, the full impact of it doesn't quite hit you. Well, this is one of those times. The full, like, weight of his statement didn't hit me until this past Wednesday morning. And as you know, on Tuesday, the Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza was struck, and of course now there's disputes about who's responsible which I don't want to get into now, but you know the images, like so many of the images coming out of this conflict, are just unspeakably horrific. Horrific. And the most heartbreaking of them all are the images of the children, you know, of parents weeping over their lifeless bodies, of children injured and in shock, and having seen and experienced these horrors That you would hope no one, much less a child, would have ever have to see or experience in their lifetime. So on Wednesday morning, I came in here for prayer and I sat like literally right there on the top step. And just those images from the hospital the night before just weighing so heavily on me and I just cried. Like I cried for those children, I cried for their parents, I cried for the innocent Israeli and Palestinian civilians whose lives have been absolutely devastated by this conflict, and then out of nowhere, that statement from my father over dinner that didn't quite register in the moment just came, came to me with such force, and I found myself crying for my family that was ripped apart by Korean War the Korean War and contending with the fact that it was my own country that killed my father, my grandfather, and inflicted such suffering on my aunt as a child 75 years ago. I felt like I was crying for the way that humanity keeps telling the same story of violence begetting violence begetting violence. This inhuman brutality that we continue to inflict on one another, where we keep saying never forget, never again. And yet we do forget and we do do it again, over and over and over again. And I wish that this was not a true story, but it is a true story. And it's important for us to not pretend like it's not true and just like sweep it all under the rug. And that's why we practice lament, you know, which is so important. And I think on Wednesday, that's what I was doing. I was lamenting the state of our world. You know, lament looks unflinchingly into the darkness of our world and it grieves and it cries out for something that we also know is true. And that is that the story of violence and death, begetting violence and death, is not the only story, nor is it even the most true one. So we've been in this series called Remembering the Story, where what we've been doing is we've been slowing down our Eucharist liturgy, and we've been looking at different parts of this story from different angles. The story that we tell week after week after week, most importantly, the story that we tell of the central character who lies at the heart of it. And so we talked about the creator God who created this world in goodness and in love. And this revealing God who uses every means possible to commune and to communicate with us. We talked about the empowering God who makes our world and the bread and the wine and our very selves sacramental with God's very presence. We talked about the redeeming God, who for love gave himself over to suffering and death and rose again. And today we come to that place in our story that talks about what I wanna call the pregnant God. We say in our Eucharist liturgy, in the fullness of time, put all things in subjection under your Christ and bring us to that heavenly country where with all your saints we may enter the everlasting heritage of your sons and daughters through Jesus Christ our Lord, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church and the author of our salvation. In the fullness of time, that is the language of pregnancy. So at conception, this mysterious process of life begins. It's set in motion, and over the course of nine months, this life grows within the mother's womb. And there are many things that are under the control of the mother in keeping herself and the baby healthy. But there is so much that is completely outside of her control. These larger forces of life and nature that are so much bigger than her happening inside of her. And in the fullness of time, her water breaks, the contractions begin, and the mother cries out in pain, and it is time for the baby to be born, and for this new life to come into the world. Creation, Paul tells us in Romans 8, was subject to futility. Creation was groaning in the pains of labor and crying out for deliverance. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of this part in the message where he says, he translates this as, all around us we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The spirit of God is arousing us within. We are also feeling the birth pangs And these sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. There's that etymological connection between delivery, as in the delivery of a child, and deliverance from bondage and slavery. Not only is creation groaning out, but we ourselves are groaning. Do you feel it? Have you groaned this week? We groan inwardly as we await what Paul calls adoption, this freedom, this liberation of the children of God, the deliverance of our bodies and our world from this seemingly never-ending cycle of violence and dehumanization and decay. And so in this story, how does deliverance, this delivery happen? We say through Jesus Christ our Lord, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church, and the author of our salvation. What is, has been and is being born through Jesus Christ in those titles? It's a new humanity, a new body, and a new story. He's the firstborn of all creation. So in this story, we're saying that through Jesus, a new humanity has been born. Like Jesus is the one who shows us what it means to be fully human, You know, like Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive, fully free, fully loving, even his enemies unto death. And he's the firstborn of this new humanity. The young adult author, Jason Reynolds, um, like I love his definition of anti-racism, which could apply honestly to any division that we have in our world. So he says that anti-racism is simply the muscle that says humans are human. I love you because you remind me more of myself than not. The muscle that says humans are human and I love you because you remind me more of myself than not. And that's what Jesus did in his life on earth. When whether it was the blind man, Bartimaeus, the woman with the hemorrhage, the hated tax collector, Matthew, the thief next to him on the cross, he loved them as his brothers and his sisters, his siblings, his own flesh and blood. And by being the firstborn of all creation, he ushered in this new humanity, a new way of seeing each other and being together and being with and for each other. Secondly, he's the head of the church. That means that through Jesus, a new body has been created. So he's not some abstract disembodied head, like just floating out there, but he's vitally connected to us, the church. Like we are quite literally his body in the world. So St. Teresa of Avila said, "'Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. We are the body of Christ in which Jesus is the head. And we are breathing with the breath of God's spirit within us, groaning with those words, inexpressible, with creation, in this excruciatingly painful, messy, bloody, and beautiful labor of love of birthing this new world. One that we will never see in our lifetimes. And yet, like a mother giving birth to her child, we don't give up and lose heart. You know, I love how the Sikh activist, Valerie Kaur, says that in childbirth, what does a mother do? She breathes and then she pushes. She breathes and then she pushes. In our language or in our parents, we might say that we pray, we breathe and we pray, and then we embody and we enact that prayer in the world. And then finally... In our story, we are saying that Jesus is the author of our salvation. That through Jesus, there is a new story that has been written. And that story is the one that we tell in the Eucharist. You know, there's a lot of stories that we hear and that we tell in our society. And some of them are true and some of them are not. But for us as followers of Jesus, that is why we come to this table week in and week out to remind ourselves when those other stories, very true stories of violence and brutality and dehumanization and death threaten to overshadow everything, to remember and for us to be remembered into this most central, most powerful, most true story, the good news of Jesus Christ, that something has happened That the light really has shined in the darkness, that the darkness has not overcome it, that the cosmos has actually turned a corner in his death and resurrection. And that one day something will happen, that as the story says, that all things will be subject not to decay and death, but subject to Christ, which means that they will finally and completely be liberated and reconciled to God in true flourishing. And it's because of what has happened, what we know will happen, that in this moment, in this already not yet of our world, where we stand, as Jürgen Moltmann said, at the dawn of a, new, of a new day, where the darkness and the light are passing each other, where things that have happened, and things that have yet to come, we're in that in-between moments, that it's in that place, as that part of that story, that we then pray, and love, and breathe, and march, and push this new world into being. And it's in that hope that we are going to pray and breathe right now. And that that is our role as the body of Christ to stand in the gap. We're gonna pray the prayers of the people which we normally focus more generally, but this week that we're going to pray more specifically around what's happening in our world in Palestine and Israel. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to pray these prayers that are written in your bulletin by the Reverend Layla Kamilak King, who's a Palestinian-American priest in Texas. And I want us to just stand here with our feet Firmly planted into the ground as we pray and to just get into our bodies right now. And I'm going to invite us to just breathe. Just take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Just do a couple of those. Deep breaths in. And deep breaths out. Just allow yourself to be very present here and now. As part of the body of Christ in the world. The spirit of God dwells within us. And prayer is breath, it's the ruach of God, the spirit of God, just breathing in and breathing out. And that whatever else is happening, whatever distractions are in our mind, as we always say, to just keep coming back to this breath. And I just want you to imagine, just all of those images, where it's not just abstract suffering, but it's so human. The faces, the lives, the actual people who are experiencing this conflict. and To just open our hearts as we stand with them in prayer and in solidarity in their suffering. And as we cry out to God, for peace and for reconciliation and for an end to war.